The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, first of all, just a, a comment, a little bit relevant to what the last question was about. In the Buddha's second sermon, which he gave also in the Deer Park at Sarnat, I think he does again suggest a very different understanding of what causes suffering. Uh, I'll just read the relevant passage of the text. He says, What do you think, monks? Are your body, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, sir. Does what is impermanent give rise to happiness or suffering? Suffering, sir. The source of suffering seems to be impermanence. In other words, the very fact that um, nothing stands still, nothing lasts, everything is entropically running down. In other words, this makes sense of the idea that sabha-sankara dukkha, all conditions are dukkha, sabha-sankara anicca, that dukkha is, 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 is built into the very fabric of the world. It's built into the fabric of space-time. It's not some simple subjective um, feeling we have in contrast to feeling happy. The world is, in a sense, um, um, not the kind of place where we can realistically hope for eternal well-being. It's not made that way. It's structurally unreliable, uh, tragic, um, entropic. But let's now go on to the point I've been trying to get to all day. <clears throat> Namely, if, um, it, what do these tasks concerning each truth imply in terms of practice? What does it mean to fully know suffering? Dukkha parinya. Pari means fully or totally or completely. It's an, it's an emphatic, uh, an intensifier. We all know that we are born, that we age, that we get sick, that we die, that things, unpleasant things happen to us. We know that. But the Buddha is suggesting we don't fully know. We don't really know it. If we really knew it, really, 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 really knew it, our lives would be transformed. And that, I think, is the, is the crucial point. And I would suggest that the practice of the Dhamma in the broadest sense and the practice of mindfulness, um, awareness, the practice of, of vipassana, which is, of course, what characterizes vipassana is that we, we don't just notice things more mindfully. We notice that they are impermanent, that they are dukkha, and they are anatta. That is the practice of fully knowing dukkha. Fully implies not just having a better understanding of Buddhism. That's not going to help much. But it means actually transforming the quality of our experience through uh, disciplined self-awareness, disciplined awareness of the world, the practice of satipatthana, the grounding of attention, the grounding of awareness. So that, and we experience this, I think, in retreats particularly, we find that after two or three days, when the mind's chatter has died down a bit, 
when we're no longer preoccupied with what's been happening and what we're going to do when the retreat ends, when we get into the spirit of that concentrated attention, a lot of what normally obsesses us falls away of its own accord. We find that we're content or that we find that the, the actual experience of the body-mind and the world from moment to moment is, is adequate. We don't need anything else. Because we have opened our minds, we've opened our hearts to uh, the condition we are in. Normally, in our craving, attachment, hatred, fear-driven existence, we skim over the surface of life. We don't really allow sufficient opportunity for stopping and going into depth. It's by, we could say fully knowing is deeply knowing. Really uh, touching in a, in a non-conceptual, um, deeply felt sense the actual fabric of our existence. And we start with a breath. And I don't think we do that just because the breath is a good object to get more concentrated on, but because breath, in a sense, grounds us in the, in, in, in the sheer presence of life itself. And as we look into the breath as impermanent, let's say, we begin to notice, not intellectually, but experientially, how each breath is one breath less. Each breath is a signal of our mortality, of our fragility, of our vulnerability. That our whole existence depends on drawing in sufficient oxygen from the atmosphere to oxygenate the blood, to keep the heart pumping, to keep the brain going. That our very existence here and now depends upon a single breath now, now again we, we know that but do we really know it do we fully know that in a way that it, it hits home to the point where our life uh, is suddenly revealed to us as something extraordinarily mysterious almost uh, and almost a wonder at the fact that we're here at all and as we open ourselves to this uh, impermanence, to this, uh, this dukkha, this, uh, the, this momentariness of our existence, it doesn't, as some critics of Buddhism would say, let us be- make us become more morbid and gloomy. People say, oh, suffering. What a miserable way to start a, a teaching. But that, again, is a very superficial reaction based on aversion, because we don't like suffering. And this, I think, is the real challenge of the Buddha's Dhamma, is to transform our, our distaste for suffering and to recognize that suffering is the door that opens up the possibility of a radically transformed sense of who we are in this world with others. And it takes time, because we are driven by uh, this enormously strong habit of craving. So when we're sitting in meditation, even though we know that it's a value and we have had great experiences in doing it, it's often very difficult to access 
that level of depth and stillness and awareness that we may find on retreat or at other at times in our lives. It's as though the whole of our organism is primed or is geared not to fully know suffering. That it seems almost instinctive. Um, and we were, and we're, I'm sure we're all, you know, we've all had, we've all had had this happen all the time. That how difficult it is just to sit quietly and notice what's going on. The mind would far better be doing, would far more be preoccupied with some trivial event or some silly memory or some anxiety about something that might happen next week or not. That's our, and I think the roots of that are in our biological, the legacy of our biological survival instincts. The craving, to me, has a remarkable resonance with the idea in um, modern biology of how evolution is driven by the desire to survive, or the, the selfish gene. Uh, there's a kind of selfishness uh, genetically programmed into us. And this, I think, is why the Buddha said that there is nothing so great in this world as the power of Mara, craving. It's not just a mental event that we can switch on or off. It actually characterizes our whole psychophysical existence. The, what the Buddha calls the five aggregates, upadana kanda, aggregates of clinging, meaning that the aggregates of the body, the mind, the perceptions, the feelings, they are all infused with this deep attachment and clinging to keep going. And that's what the Dhamma is seeking, in a sense, to go against. It's to go against that stream, the stream, the Mara Sota, the, the stream of, of the demonic. The demonic being that which freezes us into a fixed image of who we are, driven by a compulsion to get what we want and get rid of what we don't like. And it's very difficult, in fact, to go against that. It's very, very difficult. But that, I think, is why the Four Truths are so challenging. is because they start with uh, our, our, our willingness to turn about in our lives from a preoccupation with surface and sense gratification and becoming famous, or whatever it is, and turning deep down into the core of the fact that we are alive at all and that we're going to die. When I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, every day we used to have to spend half an hour meditating on the fact that death was certain, the time of death was utterly uncertain, and if that is the case, that the one thing that is, cert the one thing that is certain could happen at any time, what then, how then do I live this life now? What are my priorities? What really matters? I think if we could really um, come to experience ourselves in such a way, we would fundamentally be challenged in many of our assumptions and our priorities and our preferences in such a way that another, another way of being might begin to emerge. And I think that is what the Buddha is describing here. That if we fully know Dukkha, craving and grasping begin to die down. They begin to fall away. Or if they don't, and let's face it, they don't, <laughs> we don't any longer feel compelled to follow their 
imperatives. And this, I think, is one of the great things that I, I learnt in doing the book on Mara, the devil, is that although the Buddha overcame the power of Mara on becoming the Buddha, that didn't mean that Mara stopped appearing to him. Mara is still there. Mara saturates the world. And so even the Buddha is constantly having to deal with Mara. All of the dialogues, or most of the dialogues in the canon with Mara occur after the Buddha's awakened. Right up to moments before his, about three months before his death is the last recorded encounter. So in a way it's a little humbling and a little daunting perhaps to be aware of what the Buddha is suggesting that we, we face and that we open up to and that we acknowledge and that we address in our lives. And if we begin to somehow ground our experience in that existential openness, then we don't have to you know, somehow uh, push aside our pettiness. It begins to fall away of its own accord. It no longer makes any sense anymore. We undermine its, its raison d'etre, its rationale. In other words, we start to grow up in a way. We become more mature. We become more... Um, in a way, we start to take our lives far more seriously. I think that's often what it means. And through that process, that though the power of those habits, the power of those attachments and so forth, begins to fall away. It becomes less and less what defines us as who we are, less and less of what propels us to act and to speak and to get this and get rid of that. And that can lead to moments in which we, we really know for ourselves in an experiential way that we are free not to act on the prompts of craving. Now, again, we don't just know that sort of superficially in a sort of as, a, in a, as a theoretical belief. The Buddha describes many, many times the fact that we can actually know this for ourselves in a way that it makes a qualitative difference to how we are in this world. And that experience, the, the, um, the stopping, uh, the cessation of craving, which doesn't mean that it stops forever. The Buddha is a good enough psychologist to realize that these may just be momentary glimpses. They might be periods of some minutes or hours if we're lucky before the habitual drives reassert themselves. But in those moments, we really have no doubts that in fact we do not have to be the victims of our attachments and our fears. And that is the experience of Nibbana. Nibbana is the stopping of greed, of hatred and delusion. It's also the experience of what is rather misleadingly called the unconditioned. Now, um, again, the unconditioned is a, is a favorite of Buddhists because it seems to bring God back into the picture. And I think the Buddha uses the word um, precisely because it did have that meaning in, its, in, 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 in the culture of his time. But again, he gave it a radical different meaning. This is from the, the, uh, the, 
Asankata Sangyuta, the connected discourses on the unconditioned. He's at Savati and he says, Monks, I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. Listen to this. And what, monks, is the unconditioned? The ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. Now what he's done is he's turned a noun into a verb. He's saying unconditioned means to be unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by delusion. In no way does he suggest that it is something called the unconditioned with a capital U. It's the experience of not being conditioned by these things that grants us liberation. Liberation not as an end in itself, but liberation, freedom, to live otherwise. Because it's from here, from this point, that we enter the stream. Stream entry, sotapati. Now how does the Buddha understand the stream? He's talking to Sariputta. This is also in the Sanyutta Nikaya. Sariputta, he says, this is said, the stream, the stream. What now, Sariputta, is the stream? The noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is the stream. That is appropriate. Seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, and so on. Sariputta, this is said, a stream entrant, a stream entrant. What now, Sariputta, is a stream entrant? One who possesses this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is called a stream entrant. Now some of you might be, again, slightly surprised by that. Because normally... In Buddhist orthodoxy, stream entry is described as the abandoning of the view of individuality, or egoism. It's the um, overcoming of doubt, and it is the overcoming of what is usually translated as um, rites and rituals. The word is actually silabata, which means virtuous conduct and vows. In, in the Sutta Nipata, verse 231, it just says you overcome sila bhatta, you overcome virtuous conduct and vows. In later texts, it becomes sila bhatta paramasa, attachment to virtuous vows. But I think the Buddha is actually saying something rather more radical. He's saying you become free on stream entry from um, uh, regarding morality as a question of following certain legal prescriptions, following rules. Another um, quality that he uses to describe stream entry is that you become um, independent of others in my teaching. You become autonomous. You become free in the sense not of being liberated from something, but you become liberated to do something free to act according to your own lights. And this is not just something that monks and nuns attain after great hardship. This is Marjama 73. 
There are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, my disciples, clothed in white, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in my teaching. So what, what has, I think, happened is that stream entry has become sort of raised up to another kind of private spiritual experience that you get after lots of long, hard work in retreat, and preferably by becoming a monk or a nun. I don't want to diminish becoming a monk or a nun because I did that myself and it was one of the most valuable experiences I ever had. And all of my work is based upon having had that training. Again, if we look at the, uh, what's called the Sotapati Sangyutta, the, um, the, the connected discourses on stream entry, it's at the latter part of the, um, of the Sangyutta Nikaya. I keep referring to this, the connected discourses of the Buddha. It's a two-volume set in English, recently translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And it's interesting that the very last sections are on stream entry, is section 49 or whatever it is, which is entering the Eightfold Path. And the final section is, on, is called Sacha Sangyuti, Sammutta, the connected discourses on the truths, the Four Noble Truths. So again we get this same pattern. The Eightfold Path leads to the Four Truths. It precedes the Four Truths, even though the Fourth Truth is the Eightfold Path. Now most of the passages when the Buddha describes stream entry do so in the following way. Monks, a noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream-enterer. What for? A noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Sangha. He possesses the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. Now again... This is, this is, of course, is the form. This is the refuges, and we don't normally today associate stream entry with taking refuge. In fact, we think of taking refuge as doing some ritual whereby we join the Buddhist club. <laughs> we become a Buddhist in a public way, and we and we when we recite the refuges. And here we have the Buddha saying again and again and again that taking the refuges, having confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha is tantamount to entering the stream, entering the Eightfold Path. What I think that does is to, is, is, is to recognize that taking refuge is not just a matter of reciting a few sentences. It's actually um, uh, an affirmation of a, uh, of a, of, of a transformation of what really matters to us in our life. That we turn around in the, in, in the depths of our experience our, our priorities, what um, uh, counts, what, is, uh, what our lives are for. They are not for you know, just sort of getting some sort of 
pleasure every now and again. But the challenge is to be fully awake, to have confidence that you can actually do that. The confidence in the path itself, the Dhamma, the practice of the Dhamma, to have complete confidence in that, that that's something now that you are committed to. And likewise, confidence in the community. And again, the Buddha defines the community, the Sangha, as anyone who has entered the Eightfold Path. A layman, a laywoman, a monk, a nun, equally. In other words, it's a commitment to a community of shared ideas and values and practices and a commitment to the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. In other words, those virtues which run from everything, from mindfulness to concentration to patience to trust to all of the different things that we get all the lists of in Buddhism. They're the virtues. So stream entry, therefore, is, is far more than just a, some personal experience that we might get at some moment in meditation. It might be that. But from these texts, it's quite clear that it has to do with a complete a reorientation of our primary values, not just within ourselves, but also in relation to the world, in relation to the community, in relation to um, every aspect of our lives. How we see things, think about them, speak, act, work. All of that becomes a practice. And so if we go back to the first sermon, fully knowing suffering, fully knowing suffering becomes the, 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 the opening to a way of life in which this habitual craving begins to fall away or become less and less dominant in one's life, which leads to moments where it actually is suspended or stopped and we have a, you know, certainty that we do not have to live that way. We are free not to live that way. And that moment, that experience of the stopping of craving, is what allows us to enter the stream, to enter the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Truth, in the ways that the Buddha has just defined it. And therefore, and again I've done that in a very sketchy way, but I hope in terms of much what, what we've been looking at today, you can perhaps um, see where I'm, what I'm trying to get at. That the four truths as four acts uh, take us primarily into the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path, I think, is the key to the, to, to the Buddha's Dhamma. And um, it's interesting, actually, that the very, uh, the very first statement in the very first sermon, the Buddha says, I have awoken to a middle way. And in the very, one of the very last teachings he gives to the monk Subhadda, who approaches him as he's lying on his deathbed in Kusinara, uh, Subhadda wants to see the Buddha. Ananda says, no, he's very, very sick, you can't. The Buddha overhears and says, no, let him come. And Subhadda then asks him, you know, how am I to know what teaching uh, that I hear is your teaching? 
And he says, wherever you find the teaching on the Eightfold Path. That's his final injunction to this disciple, this new disciple, who he then you know, admits into the order, and shortly after that, probably the next day or so, dies. So the Buddha's awakening, if we go back to that now, um, is an awakening to this process. It's ongoing, it's processual, it's open-ended, it's a constant um, engagement with the world as the world is inevitably changing and shifting and unexpected things are happening. And going back to your question, (laughs) um, this is why I think it's useful to get a clearer picture of how the Buddha operated in his world because his life was one of constant interaction and engagement with his world with the society, with the kings with his, with his ambitious family he had endless hassles with his family and, uh, and he's constantly involved in dealing with strife and people often say well look, you don't get the, in the Pali Canon you hardly ever get the Buddha giving teachings on compassion or love it pops up every now and again Whereas in the Mahayana, we talk about love all the time. But actually, and this is another reason why I feel it's so important to have a good sense of the Buddha's life, is that his, his life is the teaching on compassion. Not what he says. It's easy to say, you must love everybody. It's very difficult to live in the world in a compassionate way. And that is illustrated not through what you say, but through what you do how you deal with the actual exigencies, um, conflicts of life itself. And the Buddha's life demonstrates this. He didn't have to go and spend 45 years doing all this, you know, trying to establish his community, trying to establish his teaching in the face of all kinds of opposition. And as, we'll, and, and as the, the story pans out, in the end, getting into all kinds of... Uh, crises, his world starts to fall apart and his last journey as recounted in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is really a, a story of, of a failure at one level but again like the Christ story it's a, it, it, it's a failure which is a triumph it's a passio it's a passion that although it appears to be you know, he dies bereft largely then Mahakasapa comes along and takes over the whole show But the fact that we're here today still reflecting on these things and they're still speaking to our condition two and a half thousand years later is, I think, the greatest witness or the greatest uh, illustration of um, of the victory of the Buddha's teaching. The fact that it's still alive, it's still around. And I'm afraid we have to be thankful to Mahakasapa. So that's, um, that's all I'm afraid we have time for today. Now, um, um, I know this is, 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 is crassly self-promoting, but uh, the reason I'm here in America is to promote this book. And um, there are not copies for sale here, but I, I've been given these little stickers, if I can open this package. Oh, here we go. Oh, all right. Oh, God, they're a bit tacky. Um, if you like, they're called gold border name badges. 
I'm willing to sign them and you can stick them in the copy of the book. <laughs> yes. So you've spent numerous hours speaking about the back side. The bad side. The back side. The back side. Okay. Can you, because you've had extensive experience on the Mahayana side, can you speak about the front side, which is, is the turrets on the building, uh-huh. how do they relate to the foundation uh-huh. of the building? Oh, thank you, that's a good question. Well, I think in different ways. I think there are certain elements of the superstructure, the turrets, the big building, that are entirely in accord with these foundational teachings. And there are other elements that are a little bit more questionable, uh, at least in my lights. So I think it's not a question of... And this is why I said I don't want to destroy this building. But I think in order to understand it, we need to maybe take it apart a bit and see what's at the foundation. And that will enable us to see, as it were, which parts of those superstructure are built on sound foundations and which are perhaps more wobbly. Right. What comes, what comes up to me is the basis of, uh, let's say since you spent mm-hmm. time uh, in the Korean Zen yeah. situation, taking the stereotypical Zen responses of form is emptiness and emptiness mm-hmm. is form, or that all sentient beings have Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. These are two, from the way you've just described mm-hmm. it, clearly aberrant, <laughs> if I could use that mm-hmm. word, um, vantage points that don't appear in the original... Pali Sutras, and so I'm just where I'm going with that is is do you feel as though doctrines of that nature are responses as you described Mm. potentially historical responses rather than let's say call them philosophical Mm -hmm. outcroppings Mm -hmm. of what originally happened well, actually, I disagree. I, I think the, the Heart Sutra, for example, which you quote, um, you'll find passages in the Pali Canon, I think, that are quite in... You see, the Madhyamaka philosophy, of which the Heart Sutra is, in a way, a kind of illustration, I think is in, in accordance with certain uh, statements that you find in the Pali Canon. I don't have time to go into it now, but I don't believe that is an aberration. I think the problem with it is that it presents itself in a rather metaphysical guise. It's less concrete. It's more abstract. And it becomes a kind of a slogan. Uh, I get sick of it when people say, isn't form emptiness and emptiness form? Well, yes, but what does that mean? But I feel that the, the core of that is actually quite compatible with the early teachings. And likewise, Buddha nature, depending on how we understand Buddha nature, and again, there's enormous differences within the Mahayana schools, when I was taught this in my Tibetan training, uh, the Tibetan, the, the Geluk tradition, the text we studied was called Rik Chidern, the, the, the commentary on the Buddha nature, recognizes that the origin of the idea comes from the early texts in, in what is called the Aryagota, which I've recently found is in the Anguttara Nikaya, one of the early doctrines. It's very different to what we've subsequently come to know as Buddha nature. Buddha nature is also problematic because it's a, 
it's, it's, it's a wrong translation. There is no equivalent to the word in Sanskrit, Buddha nature. It means womb of the Tathagata, or more usually, family of the Buddha. Buddha Gotra, not, not Buddha Swabhava. That was a problem that occurred from the translation from Chinese to Sanskrit to Chinese. And then it entered into English as Buddha nature. And Buddha nature, of course, sounds suspiciously like, you know, a true self or something, right? So, you know, I don't have a self, but I've got Buddha nature. Uh, but again, the idea does track back to the Pali Canon in Aryagota. And it also, I think, um, if at least in some understandings of Buddha nature, it's really just a way of recognizing that um, because we are not a fixed self, and not a static ego, therefore, by knowing that deeply, we are able to transform ourselves into a Buddha. That is how it's understood in the Gelugpa. In the traditions that think of Buddha nature as some kind of, as, as you mentioned, there's, but there's already a Buddha in here just waiting to get out, which you know, could be util, useful as an inspirational idea, but to take it literally, I think you've got all sorts of problems. So then we're back to what you said before about basically words being used in not the original fashion, such as Buddha taking words from the Vedantic mindset mm -hmm. and altering them. Then as we go along in the historical context, different groups pulling words that Buddha may in fact have used or mm -hmm. that the canon uses and altering them in ways that either fit their historical context mm -hmm. or that basically makes them get more brownie points somewhere along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's broadly the case. Um, it's a very complex story, um, but I'm not suggesting, and I really want to emphasize this, that all of the superstructures somehow wrong. It's not. It is, it is, it, what I think one has to recognize is that Buddhism is a, a living organism that is continuously reinventing itself and adapting itself to different social historical situations and coming up with different ways. Sometimes I feel that goes off like pure land Buddhism, the idea that there's Buddha Amitabha in some heaven somewhere and you pray and he's vowed for your liberation and you just have to recite his name and you'll be liberated after death. That, frankly, I can't see has got much to do with what the Buddha was teaching and, uh, and other things too. So we, it's really a question of differentiation. Learning how to... But in order to do that, you need to be clearer about what the early tradition was actually saying. And the early tradition has got muddled too, as I've been doing all day. I think the Four Truth Doctrine has been tampered with, frankly. So, you know, it's, I'm not just critiquing the Mahayanists. I think all... We have to stop. I'm exhausted. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's ten past five. It's, um, Caroline. Yes.